How's everybody doing? Awesome. Um, today we're concluding our sermon series. If you've been with us uh, last couple weeks or maybe you checked in online, we've been in a sermon series titled Sankofa. And if you're not familiar with what that means, we'll, we'll spend a few moments in the sermon kind of referencing the idea behind this series. Um, but we're going to go to scripture as we conclude this series today. And we're going to go to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 16 to 20. It says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to go to your word and to bow our hearts before you asking for you to speak to us, to meet us. We want to hear your voice. We want to see you more clearly. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray you would reveal Jesus, illuminate the word of God to us as we go to Scripture. And we thank you for this opportunity just to worship together. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, uh, last Sunday, if you were here, then you had the pleasure, the joy of hearing Andrew preach the Word of God. How many were here? How many are grateful for that? Can we give Andrew a hand? Um, I'm so grateful that our church has leaders that can step into the pulpit and preach just so powerfully. Um, while he was preaching, I actually was in Boston. I was preaching at a church in the greater Boston area, and they have a few kind of like campuses throughout Boston, uh, one in Arlington, one in Lexington, um, and then they had one in Cambridge, right in the middle of Harvard, and that was like the third service, and so the third service of, this, of, of Sunday, I was preaching uh, to a room full of Harvard students. They were uh, either PhD candidates or undergrad students, and at that moment, I really wanted to call my mom and say, hey, mom, I made it, you know, <laughs> your son's at Harvard. Um, and honestly, the joke is not lost on me, the fact that God truly does use the weak things of the world, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. I know where I came from. I, knew, I know where I grew up, and I know the fact that my life is an absolute miracle of his grace. And so it was a really moving moment. Um, and then afterwards, I got curious about this place called Harvard, and I did some research, and I said, let me find out some things, and this might be interesting for you to know. So Harvard was established in 1636. This is pre-revolutionary era, and it was named Harvard College after a man named John Harvard. He was an English clergyman, and he died soon after coming to Massachusetts, and get, get this, he gave 780 pounds, and his library had 320 volumes, and that was the start of Harvard, um, a school that now has over $50 billion endowment. Next time they ask for tuition, ask them to look at their endowment. Um, so the corporation 
was granted in 1650, but his writings, this, he, the purpose that he wanted to found this university is very interesting. He said the purpose was to advance learning and perpetuate it to posterity, but hear this phrase, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present ministers shall die in the dust. And so he founded the school with the intention that it would train clergy. It was founded to actually train preachers for the future. Um, this is the original charter of Harvard. And when I thought about that concept of an original charter, the founding principles, the uh, why things are started and the intentions behind it, I was drawn to the passage we just read in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28 because I think you can make the strong argument that this, these verses are the founding charter of the Christian faith. It's our why. It's the purpose. It's the foundation. It's why we do what we do and, and how we do it is found in these words from Jesus where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you say, man, these Christians are awfully bold, they're kind of audacious, uh, it's kind of presumptuous the way they pre present Jesus in kind of this exclusive term, um, it's really not our fault. Take it up with our founder because he told us that all authority in heaven and on earth was given to him. So we're, we're living out from that principle. But then furthermore, this is what he says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. These are the words that Jesus declares after his resurrection and before his ascension, before he leaves this earth, after he was crucified, buried, and risen from the grave. He declares these words, and this is the direction, the charter, the foundation of what we know to be the church, the people of God. Our purpose is none other than to make disciples of all nations. In other words, we exist to teach people how to follow Jesus as we ourselves are simultaneously learning how to follow Jesus. He invites us to follow him, to be his disciples. That word, it the essence of it, 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 the idea is to be his apprentice, to follow, to be a student, to study his life, to model our lives after his. That is the invitation of Jesus, but it's a twofold invitation. The invitation is come be my disciple and go and make disciples. Both things are extended to us at the same time. Jesus says, come follow me and go and teach others how to follow me. And in the middle of that, go and make disciples and teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. There's this phrase, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lest we get confused that what Jesus has sent us to do is to teach people a new self-help technique, uh, a way of coping with life, stress management, um, visualization, actualization. He's not sending us to do any of those things. He's sending us to make disciples that learn to obey everything he's commanded. But what makes that possible, discipleship, being his apprentice, obeying him, 
is the glorious reality of his death, burial, and resurrection. It's because he rose from the dead and the life and the new life that emanates from that that we can boldly call people to follow Jesus and as they follow him, they find the empowerment to obey him, to live like him from his resurrection. This is not self-help, self-willing, white-knuckling, moralism, do better, carry this yourself. This is dead people being made alive by Jesus and from that new life empowered to live the way he teaches us to. This is our charter. This is why we exist, to follow Jesus and to teach others how to follow him. And I would argue that right now, this is the most important thing that's happening on the face of the earth. So that sounds a little bold. Have you read the headlines lately, Chris? Do you know what's happening in the world? Yes, there are a lot of significant things happening in the world. There are banks imploding and wars in different regions of the world. There's natural resources that are in crisis. There are a lot of things happening in the world. And in the midst of all of that, the most important thing that's happening is that people like us are learning to follow Jesus and teaching others to follow him. Some of you didn't know how important what you're doing right now is. Some of us, we came here because we grew up coming to spaces like this and we're just continuing that. Nothing wrong with that. Grateful you're here. Some of us genuinely, it's beyond like pleasing parents or grandparents or keeping up tradition. You genuinely have met Jesus, encountered him, and you really want to know him, but maybe it hasn't translated into the other aspect of helping others to know him. This is our founding charter. This is why we exist. And what we're doing is the most important thing. Recently, I let myself binge watch a show. Um, I say let myself because I always feel guilty watching shows because there's just always something to do with four kids. And, um, and, and then also, like, I have a few jobs, you know, <laughs> not just pastoring our church. And so, like, I, I really, sh you know, shouldn't indulge. So one of the ways I hack around it is that I watch documentaries. It makes me feel less guilty, you know. <laughs> but recently I said, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm going to follow what everybody else is doing. And I watch a show about a zombie apocalypse kind of deal, you know, uh, end of the world stuff. Um, it was that show, uh, The Last of Us. Pretty wild show. But I, I made these connections as I was watching it. And I realized all of these stories have this common thread where the world is falling apart and something is trying to overcome life as it is and trying to extinguish humanity as we know it. But then there's this group of resistant people that say regardless of what's coming at us and trying to wipe us out of the face of the earth, we will resist, we'll be defiant, and we're gonna persevere so that life as it should be 
will remain. It kind of reminds me of Star Wars. I say, what does Star Wars and zombies have to do with it? Work with me. Just, just give me a second. And so, I don't know if you know, if you're familiar with this, the Star Wars storyline, um, but there was this, the episode where Anakin becomes Darth Vader. Some of you are looking at me, man, this guy's real nerdy. Okay. And so, in that episode, um, the moment he decides to become Darth Vader and starts this journey of building an evil empire to take over the world, the first thing he did was kill the Jedi. Why? Because he knew the only threat to the world he was trying to create would be people that would defiantly resist it and say, no, the world can be lived differently. It can be other. So whether it's a zombie apocalypse or Darth Vader, the, 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 this theme emerges in life where there are these forces that are trying to extinguish and wipe out the people that would defiantly resist the order that's trying to overcome them. What does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with me saying what we're doing right now is the most important thing happening in the world? That is, you and I, in the midst of the brokenness and chaos of this world, why what we're doing is the most important thing that's happening right now is because if we don't do what we're doing, which is learn to follow this resurrected Messiah and teach others how to follow, then what happens is the brokenness of this world will consume itself. We stand in defiance. We stand against the corrosion that's trying to consume, and we say, there's one who rose from the dead, and because of that, we don't have to live under the decay and the curse that we see all around us. We can live from a place of new life, and as the forces around us push us to hate and be divisive and to be elitist and to be selfish and self-centered and arrogant and lustful, we say we could live differently, not because of our own self-will, but because of one who rose from the dead. We follow him. He teaches us how to live as we really should, as we were always meant to live. And then by extension, we teach others to do the same. Why do we take this amazing invitation from Jesus to follow him and to teach others to follow him and let it get pared down to just coming to a church service? Why do we let discipleship become reduced to consumerism where we just consume more information? Where it's almost like if we're not careful, it's like, Jesus, teach me more. Teach me more. I still haven't obeyed what you taught me last week, but please, I'd love more information. That'd be really, really helpful. Kind of bored with what I learned and didn't apply, but I, could you teach me more? Could you distract me from my disobedience by new information? That one's going to land later. You'll be like, ow, oh, that hurts. But that's the reality. <laughs> Sometimes we distract ourselves from our lack of obedience by new information. But what Jesus has called us to, this glorious invitation where you and I get to follow him. And here's the amazing, the good news of this invitation. It impacts the other 166 hours of your week. If we're together for about two hours every Sunday... 
There's 168 hours in the week. What does Jesus have to say and teach us on how to live those other 166 hours? He wants to disciple us, teach us how to follow him, to be his apprentices, not just when we're in this incredibly supportive environment. I don't know about you, but when people leading me in song and worship and beautiful smiling faces, it feels very possible to be a loving human being in an environment like this. Put me on a seven train, and all of a sudden, I'm asking real big questions about, do I really believe Jesus? Do I really serve him? What happens when we're not in environments like this? Jesus wants to teach us to follow him, to be his apprentice in the workplace. When you're dealing with difficult coworkers and challenging projects and dynamics of being on a team, in your home, whether you're journeying through singleness and you're trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus in this season of life, or whether you're a parent or, or married, newly married, you don't have kids, whatever the season of life you're in, or just being a neighbor in this complex world, Jesus wants to teach us how to follow him. Or when you're doing your taxes, how many Realize that Jesus wants you to follow him when you're tempted to make up dependence <laughs> and lie on that sheet. He wants us to follow him, to know how to follow him when we're in traffic, when we're driving through the city, when we bump up against somebody in Times Square. when the rude yet honesty of New York culture confronts you, which I kind of love. Other places, they'll be polite, but they'll kind of be shady behind your back. Here in New York, you know where people stand. You know? <laughs> Jesus wants to meet us in those places and teach us what it means to follow him. And if we're not careful, we will reduce this amazing invitation to follow him in all aspects of life, in the nooks and crannies of our existence, and being able to teach others to do the same, and we'll just settle for an experience of us just coming and hearing more content and not applying it or not teaching others how to apply it. Now, here's some good news that I find hopeful, even though it's kind of grim. Um, as preachers, we're infamous for saying, this is the worst moment in history. It's never been like this. It's bad, it's bad, it's bad. Um, but if you study history, there's been really jacked up moments in human existence that have happened before this moment. Um, this is not a new problem. This idea of following Jesus and not becoming someone who teaches others how to follow him, this is not a new dynamic in the history of the people of God. In fact, Scripture says this, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, says this, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, 
for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What the writer of Hebrews is describing is a, is a state of spiritual maturity that's quite low. He says that these people, they should have been at the place of being teachers. They should have been at the place of maturity where they can teach others how to follow Jesus. And yet he's saying, you're in need of someone teaching you the very basic fundamental principles that our faith is built on from the outset. And he says that when we're in this state of immaturity, we should be at a place of eating solid food, but yet we can only stomach milk. Now, as a father of four kids, I can tell you babies are beautiful. They're amazing. They're fun to look at. But they're also pretty useless. <laughs> they don't do anything but look cute and poop and don't let you sleep. That's it. And they'll make you laugh and they'll, they'll warm your heart, but they, they, they can't, they're utterly dependent. They can't teach people how to survive. They need someone to be committed to their survival. And I remember when I first became a Christian, I was 14 years old. You got to imagine, 14-year-old Chris was really a big mess. I grew up in a single-parent home. We lived uh, under the poverty line, public assistance. My mom was raising my sister and I in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. This is before bike lanes in New York, before it became a little softer. This was during a rough, rough time. And at the age of 14, I remember when the gospel was shared with me. Actually, this past week was a really significant moment. Thursday night, I was attending the funeral of this pastor in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. This man, what a legacy he left. So many people around the world know Jesus because of this man's faithfulness to God. When I was 14 years old, I was at that church. And I was sitting in the very balcony that I was sitting in this past Thursday. And I was looking at the stage and remembering when they would preach the gospel I would want to run when they would invite people to come and follow Jesus. But I was busy being cool, holding the hand of the girl that invited me to church and forced me to come with her if I wanted to hang out with her. And so, <laughs> but being there again was very surreal. Because I remember, I didn't have the language then to describe what was happening. But I knew that these people in this room didn't just believe in God. They seemed to be enjoying him encountering him. They knew him. And just weeks after, I became a Christian. A friend of mine that I used to play basketball with, his name is Frankie Ochoa. He still serves God today. He's a pastor in North Carolina. He was the shyest guy. I remember, like, incredibly shy. One time we went out and we were teenagers. Nobody told us to do this. Our pastor didn't even know we were doing this. We took our school break um, during President's Week and we would just go and preach in the streets as teenagers. And so we'd go on the trains. We were those annoying people. You know, have you ever seen people trying to, you know, you're trying to enjoy your commute? No, we were those people. God loves you. And so, um, but this dude was so shy. I remember he, like, we went to a grocery store one time, and he, like, literally flung a track and just ran, you know, just like, it's it just, 
But this shy dude came and he sat next to me in a basketball court. And he began to talk to me about Jesus. And I was so annoyed. Because I was in the middle of smoking weed right then. And I was like, just let me get high. And he just kept on talking. And so I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get this church kid high. And so I was blowing the smoke right in his face. And so you're going to talk to me about Jesus? I'm going to make you high. And so that's how, like, jacked up I was. But he kept on. He kept preaching to me. And progressively, he kept getting sillier. No, I'm joking. Um, (laughs) But then at the end of it, he said, hey, Sunday morning, I'm going to come and pick you up. And he came in front of my house. And this is old school New York. Chris! No ringing the bell, screaming my name. And I go with him to church. And again, I see a group of people who were encountering God, enjoying him. And I gave my life to Christ. The, the, the people that have helped me along the way are too long to list. I was a mess, such a broken mess. The, to be honest, I still am. I'm just way more comfortable now in accepting the fact that I will always be dependent on God. That I'll never reach a place of being so polished and so mature that I don't need him. For the rest of my life, I will be someone on life support. That if he takes the grace out of my veins, I'm done. I'm flatlining. But there was a time where it was really touch and go. I didn't understand grace. I didn't understand God's mercy. Uh, I'll tell you one story, and then we'll wrap up. I was invited to preach at a conference when I was 18, maybe 19 max, in Ohio. And they flew me uh, to the Midwest. I'm there. I show up. I'm slated to preach in the conference. I was doing a work, uh, like a breakout. And I got there, and I said, I can't do it. You realize this, you don't do this. You know, you don't get on a plane. <laughs> I should have I stayed in New York. But I, I felt so unworthy, so guilty, so shame-ridden, so incomplete, so immature, that I felt, I can't teach people. What I realized then, those sounded like really pious holy reasons to not preach, what they really reveal was a lot of self-righteousness. Because ultimately, I felt unworthy to preach because I was basing my worthiness on my righteousness. And if you are basing your worthiness on your righteousness, you will always feel less than, incomplete. You will never measure up. What changed is I realized When we teach others, we don't teach them from the foundation of our own perfection. We stand on the perfect obedience of Jesus. And that's the foundation from which we teach. Why do I share all that? Because as we looked at the verse in Hebrews, as we're talking about this idea of being a disciple, following Jesus, and teaching others to follow Jesus, some of you are saying, teach others. I don't want to teach others. I'm so messed up. What authority do I have to stand on? I'm, I'm so immature. I don't have it all together. And we would miss the reality, the truth of what we're actually being invited into. We're not 
being invited into to teach others to follow our example and to model their life after us, we teach others to follow Jesus and to model their life after him and build their foundation on him as we continuously learn how to build our lives on him. So the good news is when you hear Jesus say, be my disciple and go and make disciples, this is an invitation that is not being extended to experts, to people that are absolutely proficient and got it all together. No, this is students teaching other students. This is people that are learning, in the process of learning, teaching others the same things they're learning. And what are we learning? What is the thing that we will continuously learn and have to keep relearning and continuously turn to and build our lives upon again and again and again? That thing is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Look at what 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 1 Chapter 15, verse 1 to 2, it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. What Paul is describing there is this continuous, dynamic, ongoing relationship that you and I build our lives on the good news of Jesus. See, when we talk about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, we're not just talking about something that you believe in order to become a Christian and it stops there. Actually, you and I have to believe the gospel to become a Christian, but we have to keep believing the gospel, keep returning to it in order to continue to stand as a Christian, in order to continue to grow as a follower of Jesus. There will never be a time in the future where you and I will be able to stand on our own two feet, on our own foundation, in our own goodness. We will always be invited to perpetually build our lives on the foundation that is Christ, his perfect obedience, his righteousness. The other night I was talking to my 13-year-old and we were talking about the Gospel of Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son story. And we were reflecting on the fact, in her own words, she was like, I was shocked to see that the older brother was just as lost than the younger brother. If you're familiar with the story, the younger brother went and lived a crazy, immoral life. The older brother stayed at home and obeyed his father flawlessly. And at the end of the story, you realize they're both lost. And so to follow Jesus doesn't just mean that we repent of our, our disobedience. We also repent and turn from the idea that our obedience actually procures God's favor. It's his grace, his righteousness alone. That's what we are building our lives on as disciples. And that's what we're calling people to build their life on as we teach them to follow Jesus. What does this look like to be as simple as possible? It looks like inviting people into your life. Over coffee, over a meal, over a walk, a hike, a trip, a weekend, a me whatever it case, a hobby that you enjoy. Letting people get close enough to your life that hopefully they see that you live a compelling enough life that they become curious. 
Not a perfect life, a compelling life. So what makes you resilient? What gives you the grit that you have? You seem to have a peace when everything is breaking around you. What is that? What's informing that? And in that space of relationship, we might be given the opportunity to say, well, let me tell you about the one who I build my life on. Now, some people may say, isn't that pushy? Isn't that audacious? You tell me what we should do with the good news that Jesus rose from the dead. I don't know what else to do with that. Like, should we keep that to ourselves? Should we say, no, let me be politically correct, not ruffle anybody's feathers. Let me not tell people that historically something has happened that has changed life forever. It, it's, it's, it lacks courage. It lacks truthfulness. If we fully believe that the resurrection has happened, then we should be itching for the opportunity to say to people, come by this graveside and see the empty tomb that's changing lives to this day. The one who rose from the dead. You don't point to your perfection. You point to his. This is what we invite people into. As we close, these next couple of weeks are probably some of the best opportunities that we might have in the year to just simply invite someone to come and join you on a Sunday, join you a Good Friday. Next week is Palm Sunday. Really dear friend of mine is going to be preaching. You don't want to miss. She's dynamic when she'll be preaching the word. There's so many opportunities these next couple of weeks. And you know what studies have found? That I think it's nine out of ten people have said they would go to a church service if they were just simply invited. Did you hear that? Nine out of ten people say, why don't you go to a church service? I wasn't invited. Would you go if you were invited? Yes, I would. Does it mean that they're going to believe Jesus immediately? Does it mean that they're going to assent to everything you believe and walk away saying, yeah, I think, every, I think you're not crazy? No. They may come and just be really cordial and say, you, you know, you believe some stuff I'll probably never believe. But that's not for you and I to determine. All you and I get to do is to present who Jesus is, what he's done, and leave the rest up to him. How does that start? The first thing I would encourage us to do is to begin to pray for people in your life that don't know this love that we're talking about, that don't know the reality of Jesus. Pray for them. Pray that they would become curious, that their hearts would become soft, that they would want to investigate the claims that are made by this man, Jesus and his followers throughout the ages that continue to say that he is transforming their life. Pray for people of all sorts of backgrounds. There's people in our lives that they're broken by poverty, they're broken by struggle, and there's people that are broken by success and, and, and have much and are just as empty. But then after you pray, consider inviting them. For some folks, I'm going to, like, just so you hear, I'm not saying this because I want the church packed, because I know how it goes. After Easter Sunday, 
Easter Sunday, all pastors feel really great. They're like, yes, we're making a difference. And then the next Sunday, everybody doesn't show up. And so I, I've been in this game a long time. I'm not trying to fill a room. What I am trying to get us to be conscious of is that there are people all around us that would believe in the hope of Jesus if given the opportunity. For some of your friends, inviting, inviting them to church might be too big of a leap. But inviting them to your home, inviting them to coffee, and not to just proselytize, not just to just, hey, let me, I'm glad you're here, I'm paying for this meal, you shut up, listen, you know, not, <laughs> not to sell, but to actually imagine Imagine if we would be the kind of people that the living God would shape us in such a way that we would actually love people, that we would want to be present with them, hear their stories, listen, care for them. And if they never believe in Jesus, at least they'll be able to say, someone who believed in Jesus treated me with the most dignity I've ever experienced in my life. Could we be a part of that? Because if we are, I would encourage you that at some point, you're going to be a part of someone's story. Like, folks, a part of my story and a part of your story, say you were instrumental in helping someone come to the feet of Jesus. As we stand, as the worship team prepares to lead us in song and in prayer, the prayer team is in the back. And so at any given moment during this time, if you're feeling just a tug to receive prayer, if the words that were shared earlier, the message, anything that prompts you to say, I need prayer, you can just simply slip out of your seat and go to the back to my right, to your left, and they would love to pray with you. I can't encourage you enough to avail yourself of that. But if you feel comfortable doing so, could I invite you just to just bow your head just for a moment. And in your own words, could we respond to Jesus' invitation to be his disciples, to be his apprentices, that make other apprentices. In your own words, commit to Jesus. Jesus, I'm not just going to be a church attendee. As important as that may be, I'm going to be your disciple. The other 166 hours of the week, I'm going to look to you to teach me how to truly be alive. But I also want to teach others how to experience this life in you. Make me be a disciple that makes disciples, Jesus. Jesus, we pray for our friends, our family members, our neighbors, those that are far from you, those that don't know you, even though you're not far from them. And we ask that you would open their hearts to know you, to see you, to turn to you. Let's worship him at this time. Let's turn to him. Let's seek him. If you feel comfortable doing so, we could lift your hands in the presence of God. Let's lift our voice. Let's worship him. He's here.